Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join us Inside the Morgue. Hi, I'm Jess. And I'm Alice. We're both autopsy technicians who met at work and bonded over our love of all things forensics and true crime. We wanted to share our inside view of the world surrounding autopsies and crime by taking a deep dive into how crime scene investigation shows portray our everyday work. Welcome to episode two of Inside the Morgue. Welcome back. Thanks for coming back. Yeah. We're officially podcasters now. So exciting. All right. Second episode's going to be way better than the first. So gear up and we can get right into it. Yeah. So this episode, we're going to be dissecting Law and Order SVU season 17, episode one, Devil's Dissection and Criminal Pathology. This episode takes place a few days into June and... It starts out with a dismembered body being pulled out of the water. Really strong start to an episode. There's no obvious tears, but there are cutting marks on the bones and tendons of this body. And at the autopsy, the doc is dictating and recording his findings. But first red flag right off the bat. There's no autopsy text at this autopsy. I just want some representation in the show. I just want to be seen because I, whenever I tell people what I do for a living, they're like, that's a job. And I'm like, it is. I exist. This is New York, too. Wouldn't you think that they have autopsy texts? I was just going to say, I don't know how other offices work, but I feel like since this is New York, specifically Manhattan, that they're going to be pretty busy and they're going to need autopsy techs to offer aid to the pathologist to help autopsies get done efficiently and, you know, in a timely manner, like we help our docs. But anyway, going on, the doc dictates that the victim is a Caucasian female in her late 20s with red hair. He states that the probable cause of death is a fractured skull and that the right arm was severed surgically at the shoulder. So we do have to give props to Law and Order during this scene because the doc had on PPE. What a concept. We love to see it. And I don't know if we defined it in our last episode, but PPE stands for Personal Protective Equipment. And it's basically just keeping yourself safe when you're doing autopsies. So we see him in a surgical gown and gloves and the whole deal. So that was really good to see. The detectives found the victim in a bay. And they are trying to figure out if she had been in the water a while and just floated up as the water warmed up, or if the crime scene unit had just missed this body when they searched the area the first time back in April because there was another serial killer investigation going on. So their main concern is determining whether or not this is the body of one of the original serial killer's victims or if they now have some kind of copycat killer. Upon autopsy, the body had both vaginal and anal injuries, which is consistent with a rape. And they actually show the doc taking pictures. We love it. We love to see it. And, you know, if only they had autopsy texts, this would be almost perfect. Although the lighting in SVU still isn't great. I feel like all these shows are going to have really dark, dramatic lighting because it's got to be edgy. It has to be edgy and spooky. Edgy and spooky. But this is still some progress from the last episode. 
And as stated before, the skull was fractured and the cuts on the dismembered body were precise enough to make this ME believe that they had been done by someone with surgical training. And I don't know if this was an intentional reference, but I immediately thought of Jack the Ripper as well as the Black Dahlia case, a.k.a. the Elizabeth Short case, because... Anyone who is a true crime fan like us will probably know that these cases both remain unsolved, but they were both involved some kind of dismemberment or mutilation of the bodies of the victims that investigators believed could only have been done by someone with medical or surgical training. So based on how this body looks in the episode, I think it's pretty accurate for how a body may look if it had been in water for three months. Oh, definitely. Right? So water temperature affects decomposition a little bit differently. So if the water was warming up, the bloated stage would not be seen and the skin would appear almost scale-like at first glance with extreme skin slippage, which for anyone who doesn't know what that is, it's exactly what it sounds like. The top layer of skin just slips or peels away. It's not pleasant. And the body would also look grayish. So Another quote-unquote fun fact, bodies also decompose slower in water than they would if they were exposed to air, and it actually would also be slower in salt water than in fresh water. So this ME collected DNA, which was sent for testing, and of course, immediately they got a match for a military database. Uh, They discovered the victim's name and that she was 28 years old, and they even get her last known address. But unfortunately, this is another red flag. Oh. I know. I was really enjoying this, <laughs> and they just hit us with all these red flags right off the bat. Um, but DNA testing takes several weeks to come back with a match, and in the SVU world, it apparently happens in like less than the span of a day because they have to get done everything in an hour that's true that's true they do it i will give true crime shows that (laughs) or not true crime crime dramas that they have to get it done in an hour with commercials with commercials i was gonna say (laughs) this was a really long episode though i watched it on hulu this was their season premiere of for season 17 so we definitely came in like in the middle of something because I was so confused watching this. I was like, there was a serial killer back in April. I was so sucked into the drama, though. I used to watch earlier episodes of SVU whenever they were on TV when I was a kid. Definitely, I was too young to be watching SVU, but there I was in front of the TV watching it. And But I haven't watched it in so long, but I was still so sucked into the drama of the personal lives of the detectives. But yeah, we came in like right in the middle of their serial killer investigation, essentially. Um, so back to it. The Emmy presumed that this victim was a quote-unquote working girl, another word for a sex worker. And the detectives go to the last known address of the victim and find a woman who is very much alive with the same name that they believed had been the body that they had in the morgue. So we learn from this woman that she has an identical sister and it is assumed that the identical twin is actually the victim. Them being identical explains the mix-up in identity here. The drama. The drama. I know. Come on. You have <laughs> a twin sister mix-up and a double serial killer in this first they, act. Like, they're just throwing everything in there. Throwing us the drama. The living twin sister tells investigators that her sister had moved to the city and began drinking and struggling with substance abuse after the death of their mother. So the DNA was run again to confirm a match for the identical twin, and the living sister is shown the body to get a positive ID for the victim. 
Yeah, and they were talking to somebody who knew the victim. This was at um, like a shelter home, or I think they called it a mission home. And she tells the detectives that an older woman came to get the girl back in April. Uh, they looked up video surveillance, and they were trying to see if they could identify this older woman. So you cut to the team investigating a townhouse in Harlem that is in connection to all of this. And they're using GRP, which stands for Ground Penetrating Radar. And this is a sonogram that that enables you to see inside either like a wall or a floor. And the wall that they're investigating used to be a chimney before this house was redone a couple years ago, they said. And they see this shadow in the wall on the GPR. So they start cutting and breaking down the wall to see what's inside. And they found a suitcase with a mummified body inside. Dun dun dun! But first, green flag, because the mummification process most definitely could have occurred in this situation. So for those who don't know, mummification only occurs when the body is progressively getting dehydrated. Um, this process really only occurs when you're in like a warm, arid condition, and that ultimately results in the desiccation or the drying up of the body. It occurs most readily where the air is really warm and dry. Those are the perfect conditions to create that atmosphere for the body to become mummified. Yeah, especially if it had like previously been a chimney. Like that's just dry, hot air the whole time. So the body in this state would typically be like a brown color, really shriveled, leathery skin. Um, but it could retain like certain aspects of their appearance. So that makes it more likely to establish cause of death because not everything in normal decomposition it just gets like soupy almost, but mummification preserves everything. I found all of this info on the Forensics Library. They have a whole article if you're interested in learning more, um, and that's going to be included in our sources list. The ME examines the second body, and but again, there's no autopsy tech. I, you know what, SVU, you can just cast us. We're available. I volunteer as tribute. I, I know how to hold a scalpel. I just throw me in the background, even. I used to be lines. a theater kid. I'd be perfect. <gasps> yes, they could give you lines. You'd be good at acting. I'm not good at acting. I could, I just need to stand in the background. They do the second autopsy, and the ME states that the incisions on the body also seem to have been made by somebody with a medical background, medical training, and the pubis and ilium of the body were scraped where they were separated from the abductors. The muscle was cut away from the bone, the body was cut, broken, uh, and it was tied with electrical cords so it was able to fit in the suitcase. They had to uncurl the body, x-ray it, but they also had to rehydrate it, which, yeah, another green flag. This is like a real process that we haven't had to do like in our career yet, but I know it happens. I was going to ask you, because I know you've been working longer than I have as an autopsy tech, and I've never done, like, a mummification case, so I was wondering if you had. I haven't had a body that was, like, been super decomposed that I've had to rehydrate their fingertips to get fingerprints, but mm -hmm. I know that in order to do that, you have to inject the area with a glycerin injection. I've also heard that people can use sodium hydroxide for rehydration, Ooh. too. Interesting. But I'm pretty sure they rehydrated the entire body. So I was looking this up, and in order to do that, you have to plunge the body in a tub of water combined with something else, and you have to do this for a few days. This reminded us of a real-life crime that happened in New York. This is the murder of Raina Moroccan. 
I hope I'm saying her last name right. <laughs> I don't know if it's, I, I don't know if it's Moroccan or Maraquin. We got all of this information from a Grunge.com article titled "The Tragic Story of Raina Maroquin's Murder" by Jean Mendoza. This occurred in 1999 on Long Island, which isn't far from where Alice grew up. She's a New Yorker. It's true. <laughs> I am a New Yorker. However, I was six when this happened, and I wasn't quite into true crime yet, so I have no memory of this. Kind of close to home. When I was reading the article, I was like, no way. I, I know exactly where that is. A man was selling his home, and the buyer of that house had requested that the house be cleared of all debris before they moved in. So the current owner of the house had bought this home with a mysterious barrel in a crawl space in the basement, which... Is spooky and creepy and kind of sketchy. I'm sorry, but if I moved into a house and there was a mysterious barrel in the crawl space, that would be the only thing I would be trying to do was open that barrel. Right? What is in there? Why is it here? So this was too heavy for him to move, but this barrel had been there the entire time that this man was living there. However, he was going to sell the home. He had to get somebody to open up to see what was inside this barrel because it was so heavy that they just had to, like, get help. Well, he ended up finding the mummified remains of Reyna. He obviously called the authorities to report this. An autopsy revealed that the remains were that of a petite woman with black hair. It also showed that she was nine months pregnant at the time of her death. She suffered blunt force trauma to the head with multiple lacerations and skull fractures, and they determined that her age was somewhere between 20 and 30 years old. It's just so sad. This whole case. Detectives traced the origins of the barrel that she had been found in back to a company called Melrose Plastics. The company was located in Manhattan and specialized in artificial flowers. They found a notebook in the barrel with the remains, and although it was severely damaged, forensic technicians made out some writing in the journal that said the name Maroquin and also, quote, don't be mad I told the truth, which is just so ominous. And there was also an immigrant visa number, which led the detectives to be able to identify the remains as Raina Maraquin. They were able to locate a friend of Raina's who told detectives that Raina had disappeared 30 years ago. So it's 1999 when she was found. This means the last time she had been seen alive was 1969. In the 60s? In the 60s. 30 years. 60s was so long ago. Before she disappeared, Raina had confided in her friend that she was pregnant, but she wouldn't say who the father of the child was. But she did reveal that the father of her child was a married man, obviously married to another woman, but had promised Raina that he would leave his wife for her. However, it soon became clear that this man was not going to leave his wife. And Raina also confided in her friend that she called her boyfriend's wife to come clean and tell the wife that she was pregnant with her husband's child. So Raina's friend got a very distressed call from Raina one night and immediately went over to Raina's apartment, but Raina was nowhere to be found. And that was the last time her friend had heard from her. Yeah, detectives were able to track down the father of Raina's baby, and his name is Howard Elkins. Elkins was the co-owner of Melrose Plastics, and he was actually the original owner of the house that Raina's remains were found in. Oh my god. How spooky. He, this man murdered a woman, a pregnant woman, put her in a barrel, left it in his house where he lived with a family. And there were multiple owners after him. He moved out and sold it without a thought. 
I wish I could be that carefree. Nah, I'm probably he he was probably stressing, but like I can't imagine it's a little serial killer oh, yeah, vibe I there. <laughs> I take that back. I didn't mean it. I just can't imagine the mindset you're in. We're like, yeah, this is fine. I'm just gonna sell the house with the barrel still right. there. It's psychotic. Luckily, detectives were able to locate Elkins, who was now living in Florida, and he was found, but he denied knowing Raina. He refused to give his DNA because the, the detectives wanted to test it against the babies to see if he was actually the father or not. But the authorities say that they would be back with a court order in a couple days that he had to give them a DNA sample. However, the next day, Howard Elkins was found dead due to a, a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He was never formally charged, however, the authorities considered this to be an admission of guilt. They believed that Elkins killed Raina in a fit of rage after she had admitted to his wife that she was pregnant with his child. The DNA from Elkins' body was tested against the babies, and it was confirmed that he was the father. Authorities were able to find Raina's mother, and they were able to give her closure on what happened to her daughter. Her mother was 95 years old. And she was later put to rest uh, after she had found out that her daughter had passed how she did. This case is just so bizarre and just so crazy. It's insane. It's, it's, it's ultimately, though, it's just so sad. And uh, after reading that whole article about it and watching this episode SVU, the connections are just... There's so many similarities. So many similarities. It had to be loosely based on it. I know SVU always starts every episode, and it's this is not based on true events, but I feel like it had to at least be a little bit inspired by this case. Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely inspired. So in our SVU episode, the Emmy estimated that their mummified victim was a white female, and he examined her teeth and estimated her to be about 25 years old. And here we have a green flag. Dental examinations are extremely reliable in estimating someone's age. Jess and I have actually both assisted on dental examinations with a forensic odontologist. For those of you that don't know, that is a basically a forensic dentist. And I just have to say, I will never forget the first dental exam that I assisted on because it was also my first decomposition case. You never forget your first. <laughs> you never forget your first decomp. You never forget seeing it. You never forget smelling it. I wrote it down in my diary that night. Dear diary, I had a decomp. Dear diary, I smell so bad. Teeth are a great way to estimate a person's age at death because everyone's teeth develop at a relatively similar rate. So, for instance, in children who are about like 10 to 12 years old, they're going to have like similar dentition. You're going to see similar baby teeth are missing, similar baby teeth are still there, similar adults' teeth are starting to come in. However, this is just an estimate, so a forensic odontologist would likely give an age range after their examination, not an exact age of the victim. Another reason teeth are great for possible identification purposes is that they are made of enamel, which makes them more resistant to postmortem changes, aka changes that happen to the body after death. And other parts of the body will experience changes like decomposition or heat degradation, whereas the teeth will not because they are made of enamel. Yeah, it takes insane heat to even do anything to the teeth. Yeah, I forget. I was, oh, I should have looked this up again. I forget the exact temperatures. I remember learning in class 
It's in the thousands to actually do something to teeth. And then isn't it even longer for fillings or is it less time for fillings? I wish I knew this off the top of my head. I know. We'll do an update in our next episode. Comment if you guys want to know more. Maybe some of you know. Maybe there's some other forensic experts out there listening. Or maybe there's some dental students listening. Maybe there's some dentists out there that can tell us. So in this episode, the victim's height is estimated to be about 5'6", and she was believed to be in pretty good physical health. It's also noted that she had a skull fracture, just like the first case, but her ultimate cause of death was ruled to be a strangulation, and it is noted that the hyoid bone is fractured. Hooray, we have another green flag. We're doing great on green flags. I know, now we're on a roll. We started off a little rough with two back-to-back red flags, but, I mean, they're on a roll with the green flags. In strangulation deaths, the hyoid bone can get fractured, although there are cases where the hyoid bone is not fractured. So it's not like a hard and fast rule that the hyoid bone has to be fractured in a strangulation case. But for those of you that don't know, the hyoid bone is a U-shaped bone that sits in the front of the neck just below the jaw, and it's very important in swallowing and speech. So I'm using it right now. And it is the only bone that is not connected to nearby bones directly. It's only distant articulated or attached to other bony parts of the body via ligaments and muscles. The body in this case was wrapped in a blanket. The dry heat and the smoke from the chimney assisted in mummifying the remains. As Jess had stated before, it has to be a very dry, hot environment to desiccate the body. The Emmy estimated this body had been there for over a decade. The incisions in this body also show medical technique, as did the other case. And in a different scene, we learn that this body may have been of Swiss nationality. Now, here's where this episode gets really crazy. I know we've already had a crazy episode with possible multiple serial killers and an identical twin mix-up. But no, I literally was on the edge of my seat watching this. (laughs) Couldn't believe there was another twist coming. The detectives also uncover that the chief deputy ME, a.k.a. the doc that had been doing autopsies this whole episode, lived at that house at the time the body had been plastered in the wall. But wait, there's more. The body was that of his ex-fiance. He did the autopsy of his fiance 13 years after the fact, and now, for obvious reasons, people are starting to get suspicious that this ME is the killer with medical experience that they had been looking for. Also, to add, this ME, as soon as I saw him, I was like, he gives off serial killer vibes. Okay, I thought that too, and I felt bad at first when I was watching it. I don't get good vibes from him. Bad vibes. But I also have to say, he's the one writing the reports. Why was he telling detectives, oh, hey, he might have medical training? You have medical training! I think because the first serial killer had medical training, and he was trying to pop it all on him yeah oh and another plot twist we find out later in the episode that both of these guys went to medical school together and they They, knew they knew each other Everyone, you have to watch this episode. It was really, really entertaining. This was, was a really good episode. I know we're just spoiling it for you. But go ahead but and watch it anyway. It'll still be so entertaining because we're not giving the full episode. We're, we're just, just giving, we're just giving like, the parts. gory stuff that we know about. <laughs> <laughs> so they call in another pathologist who is Dr. Melinda Warner, who is an icon in the SVU world. I recognized her even from my early days of watching SVU. I knew exactly who she was when she turned up, and I was so excited to see her. But she comes in to re-examine the two autopsies independently. We just have to say, in this episode, it kind of seemed like SVU was trying to make it seem this office only had one medical examiner who was working for the whole borough of Manhattan. And in our office, we have six per diem pathologists. And in theirs, it seemed like they only had the one. 
However, I will say it has been a while since I've sat down and had an SVU marathon. So maybe in other episodes, we see other doctors working at the Emmy's office, but it really just seemed they had this one guy. Like he's the only yeah, one that does it. It seemed like he was the one guy and they called in Melinda just because they needed a second opinion. But I maybe maybe when I, I am going to have to sit down and have an SVU marathon because now I'm obsessed. While Melinda Warner is listening to the first doctor's dictation, which I don't really know if you're allowed to do that because you're supposed to be examining the body and making up your own opinions. Yeah, that's the whole point of doing like a second exam. But maybe because of the situation that they were in, right. she wanted to know what he was saying and rule if that was fact or not. Right, because he was a suspect now. And I think at this point yeah. they had arrested him. I, yeah, I think he was in custody. I think he was in custody, yeah. So maybe because he was a suspect, but it still seemed... I still don't know if you're really supposed to do that. It might have just been like yeah. an SVU thing. But she states that the time of death the first doctor had come up with was right off the bat a mistake. She estimated that time of death was early April, but based on the crime scene photos, the body was wrapped in like a plastic or a tarp. So if this body went in the water in mid-April, the crabs or the fish would have nibbled away at the soft tissue, which yet another green flag. Yay! We love, you know, Melinda Warner isn't going to give us anything but green flags. So she said that the crabs or the fish would have nibbled away at the soft tissue, which is actually factual because crayfish and other aquatic life will nibble at bodies that are found in the water. Uh, so the actual time of death is more likely to be around May and not April. The first report also neglects to mention that the dismemberment of the body took place anti-mortem, which is a huge fact that wouldn't you want to put in your autopsy report? Yeah, because that's... Oh my god, I can't... That's before death, so... That yeah, person anti-mortem was alive. is before death. That person was alive when they were and just, cutting oh, into living tissue causes a vital reaction of bleeding and hemorrhaging and that's very different than cutting into dead tissue because we know that dead men don't bleed so the re-autopsy of the mummified body found gold overlays in the teeth that are very specific to german swiss dentists and this was also left out of the first report the dentist in Switzerland was located and the body was able to get a positive identification. But this also ties back to the Raina Maroquin case because, as we mentioned earlier, they noticed that she had very unique dental work done and they were actually able to trace that type of dental work back to El Salvador, where she had grown up. And if you remember the first victim story, she was seen leaving her shelter home with an older woman. And detectives search this corrupt Emmy's house and find autopsy photos at his bedside, which are that's Ew. just so spooky. <laughs> I guess if you have serial killer vibes, that's what you do. That's true. That's true. I'm just learning that I'm not a serial killer this episode, which is such a relief. Uh, he also had a closet full of women's dresses and wigs. And now the second victim was believed to have gone back to Switzerland shortly after the estimated time of death. Uh, but the detectives have a theory that this corrupt M.E. used her passport and posed as a woman using the wigs and the dresses to go to Switzerland and then come back as himself. So they run facial recognition on airport TSA security footage that comes back, and it was clearly not a young woman going through airport security. The jawline was wider by two centimeters and the symmetry was off. After making this discovery, detectives learned that this corrupt ME that they had just arrested had made bail and that he had gone to quote unquote visit 
the woman who had given the detectives the lead that he may have been the one posing as his ex-fiance at the airport. Detectives go to this woman's house and they find dried blood all over the floor. And then an officer tells the detectives that there are freshly cut body parts coming in with the tide at the beach. So we go to the beach with the team and there's a severed leg, an arm, and a head wrapped in plastic. After looking at the head, the detectives determine that this is the woman who gave them the lead about the corrupt Emmy and that she had obviously become his next victim. The forensics team finds all the body parts but the left thigh, which they believe was intentional because they theorized that the doc had cut her in her femoral artery, which is the main blood supply to the lower body. And it's located kind of like in the inner thigh and the groin area. And it kind of goes down behind the knee. And because it's the main blood supply to the lower body, if it gets cut, it's going to bleed a lot and it's going to bleed quickly. So this could have killed her. The team is putting the body parts, uh, they're laying them out on the beach, and it was just like such like a morbid shot of body parts on the beach. But that actually reminded me, I used to work at a whole body donation center, and oh, yeah! I would do that. I would do the procurement, and we would take whatever we took. A lot of times, it was basically like every part of the body that we would take, because it was viable and good. And then after all the tissue was wrapped, we would lay it out in the image of a body to just account that we took everything correctly. Directly and kind of just double check, but we would make the outline of the body. Oh my gosh. Which I don't know if I have serial killer vibes now. That's crazy. Just slight, slight vibes. I didn't want to say anything. But we have a scene of the team using bioluminescence to identify marks and substances in some floorboards in a separate household. There are pronounced gouges in the bottom layer of the floor. A crime tech suggests that the implement was that of a large flat blade, which he thought would probably be a cleaver. And he shines his blue light over the area, and there's a pattern of white marks and strokes that show up. And the killer had tried to wipe the blood with bleach, but as we learned from last week, Bleach is an oxidizing agent, so of course that's going to make it glow under the light too. Mm-hmm. There is another green flag for them showing the tech using bioluminescence. Yay! An autopsy is done on the latest body. The Emmy determines that the manor is homicide because no one ends up dismembered on purpose. The cause of death is sanguination, which is the proper term for basically when you bleed to death. We find that the dismemberment occurred post-mortem, which is after death, but it's difficult to find that initial wound, most likely because it was on the piece that was missing. But the toxicology comes back clean, but they said that her HCG levels were high, and those levels indicate that the woman was pregnant. That's also very accurate, too. Those levels would be really high if you are pregnant. That brings us an end to this episode. From our point of view inside the morgue, we tallied a total of six green flags and only two red flags for this episode. Law and Order got a lot of things right. So in our professional opinions, this episode of Law and Order SVU does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. Yay! This is such a fun episode to watch, and it was a really good episode with a lot of green flags. And like I said before, I used to watch a lot of earlier SVU episodes when they were just on TV, but I'm definitely going to have to sit down and do a binge watching of uh, SVU ASAP. 
And speaking of, if any of you have any show or episode suggestions, comment or DM us on Instagram with what you'd like us to watch or what you want us to talk about. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod. That's the end of our episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for a new dissection. Bye. Bye.